feeling that the meditation, the path, is about removing something. But personally, I think if something is dissolved, but what you get with the dissolving is not some kind of uh, emptiness where everything disappears. But I think it's more that some obstacles are dissolved so that then your creative potential, your creative functioning can really manifest, of course, with wisdom and compassion. And so what I'd like to do today, uh, talking about creativity without grasping, because I feel if there is very little grasping, you will have more creativity. If you have lots of grasping, you'll have little creativity. So that, personally, that's the way I see the two going together. And so, of course, to talk about creativity without grasping first, I have to look at the mechanism of grasping. And to me, this is one thing that we can be very useful in terms of our daily life. It is, it is not, the aim is not to stop all grasping. I think it's very important to see. I think as a human being, uh, through evolution, we have survived thanks to grasping. So grasping as a function, an evolutionary function. And that's why we do it so easily. But I think the question is, how much do we grasp? Is it what I would call a functioning grasping? Or is it what I would call an egocentric grasping? And I would see the path of meditation as basically diminishing the percentage. That we might start with 95% grasping and move it down to 50%. But the thing is not of going to 0%. As human beings, I think there need to be a certain way we encounter life. And as we are this organism, this organism is going to try to survive. And I think that's part of the function. But then what we can look at is what do we add to this, which you could say hamper function, creative functioning. And to me, what is really useful in terms of looking at grasping and creativity is in terms of this amplifying, exaggerating effect. So, I will start by just a little image. So, let's say this watch is, in imagination, incredibly precious to me. Either it's made of gold and diamond, either it's given me by somebody precious, or for whatever reason, it's precious to me. And because of that, I am going to want to hold on to it. I'm going to want to protect it. I'm going to want possibly not to share it. I'm going to, so basically, I'm going to very likely grasp at it. And so if we do this to anything, then if I do this, what's going to happen? two things are going to happen to my arm. 
The first thing is that I'm going to get a cramp in the arm. The longer I grasp at it, the longer I hold onto it. And that's why often this is a sign of grasping. Suffering, tension, is often a sign of grasping. But something which is more important and more problematic is the fact that when I do this, I cannot use my hand for anything else. So basically, I am stuck to what I'm grasping at. And this, I think, is very important to see. And so what are the solutions? One solution could be to cut the hand. But that, I think, is a little drastic. But a lot of ascetic practice is about that. It's a kind of, you know, little kind of drastic solution. Another solution is to get rid of the clock. But the clock is not saying to me, come, 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 you really want to grasp at me, you know. I mean, of course, when you see something, if, mm, you think that the thing is in the thing itself. But it's in you, in a way, through contact, having the feeling toward wanting to get it. So you can get rid of the object, but that's not, I think, going to resolve anything. And so what I feel we do when you do the practice of meditation is that we learn over time to slowly, slowly open our head. So then we can use the clock, but we don't stick to it. And then we have choice, and then we have freedom. And then I think we can have creativity. And to see that when we grasp at something, that's where, in a way, this important teaching about contact. So yesterday I was talking of feeling tone, and I was saying you have these five omnipresent factors, contact, feeling tone, perception, attention, intention. And today we really go into focus on contact, because I think that's where grasping starts. And I feel part of the awareness practice is to become aware of contact. Oh, I contact in that thing, and then what happens when I come into contact and I grasp? And so when we come into contact, that it be with a sound, with a thought, with a sensation, with a person, etc. Generally, when we grasp, immediately we identify. I, me, mine. The two, grasping and identification, go together. Then as we identify, we in a way solidify around what we grasp at. Next, we isolate around it. And next, we magnify it. And so this, I think, is what is a problem in a way with grasping, is when it has this amplifying effect because that will actually stop creative engagement. That will stop our creative potential to manifest. And then the grasping can have two ways to amplify. One way is through proliferation. Let me give you a good example. You have this wonderful flower arrangement here. So you are here, and you're able to see this beautiful flower arrangement. So I come in the room, I see the beautiful flower arrangement, and mm, 
I like her, you know. Hmm, beautiful color. Hmm, where did, where did they buy it, you know? Is it down the road? What's a better shop? Do I have enough money? How much did it cost? That's proliferation. So you're not with the beauty of the flower anymore. You are with the acquiring and the commenting and the extrapolating what I would call abstraction. So you move from the experience itself to abstracting about the experience. And in abstraction, your creative potential has very little leeway in the, in the experience. But you can look at this, and you can have an, what I would call a negative proliferating effect. You see the flower arrangement? Ah, oh, this is such a nice flower arrangement. I am a hopeful, hopeless flower arrangement. I can never arrange flower like this. I'm such a terrible person. I can't even do this. You know, what's the point? Da, 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 da. So from something which is just, you know, a bunch of flowers, which are beautiful, you could go actually very fast, either in positive, so to speak, proliferation, or negative proliferation. Instead of creative engagement is, oh, they brought this beautiful flower. Can I appreciate them? So anyway, part of the creative engagement is being with the experience, but this adds a certain quality to the experience. For example, appreciating. So you could enter the room, see the flower, enjoy them, and that's it. Because of course, we could become obsessed by the flower. Ooh, they're nice, and then you kind of, you know, that's all you think about. But that's not the idea. The creative engagement is to see the thing within the wide perspective of the whole situation. So it's kind of part of the condition. But we are not stuck on only that condition. So this is a difference, grasping it isolates one condition and then extrapolate around it. When creative engagement is you see the condition, you appreciate it, and within the whole other conditions. So it's a much wider open view. And because of that much wider open view, you can have more creativity, you can have more possibility. But another thing, with that amplifying effect is that you can have exaggeration. That's with grasping, often, instead of this is happening now in this way, you generally go into, it's always like this. It will never change. Which then makes it this, again, big, massive abstraction, which the creative Potential cannot do anything with always. It can do something with what happened, how did it happen, but not with this amplifying effect. Like uh, many years ago, I was, um, I phoned a friend, and I said to her, how are you? She said, life is terrible, everything is terrible, da, 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 da. And I said, what happened? Nothing happened, it's always like this. And so after 10 minutes, finally she said, yes, yesterday, something happened. And then we can shift the discourse 
from this kind of impossibility, you could say, to, oh, this happened, it happened in this way, how could I creatively engage with this situation? So that's, that's what, the, in a way, the difference I see between the creativity and the grasping. And so what I think is important is not that we try not to grasp ever and to be always creatively engaged, but actually to notice, I think part of the meditation process is to help us to notice when, it, when do I grasp, how does it feel, how do I amplify, how do I exaggerate, or to see it as a signal. I think when you start to say to yourself, it's always like this, that's a signal that we are grasping. So from this seeing, oh, I'm grasping, can I come back to the condition themselves? So it's kind of like bringing this caring, careful mindfulness to the situation. And then to kind of, you know, in a way, exploring the grasping process and then seeing, oh, recognizing when we creatively engage, how it feels, what happened, recognizing when we grasp, and things of that nature. So then what I thought we could do today, uh, this morning, is look more at grasping in terms of contact with the senses. So you have, uh, you can see something, you can hear something, you can smell something, you can taste something, you can feel something in the body, and you can have thought. And all this is a contact. And each time we are in contact, we can grasp or we can creatively engage. So I thought this morning we could work with sounds and possibly also we could work with sensation because I think that's something we really have to deal with a lot. And then in the, this afternoon I will look at another aspect of uh, grasping and creative engagement. So maybe let's just look at uh, sounds and at sensation. And then that's what we're going to do I plan for us to do uh, meditation, sitting, walking, sitting, and after we'll finish the morning with a discussion. And so you hear a sound. What do you do with it? Do you just hear a sound? Or do you start to grasp at the sound and then proliferate or exaggerate around it? And one of the sound, like when we sit in meditation, we'll work with more like natural, you could say, sound. But one thing in our daily life we can look at is actually when we come into contact with words. You hear a word, what do you do with it? I mean, what is a word? Often in the Buddhist tradition, they talk of emptiness. And I would say, Words are fairly empty. I mean, it's just, you know, a word, it, I mean, the longest word won't last more than a few seconds. And then it's gone. So it's uttered, and then it's really, it's gone. But you might sit in meditation, and suddenly you remember a word somebody said to you two years ago. How dare they say this? That was really da-da-da-da. 
And then you could actually create a very unpleasant feeling toward na when the word is not uttered whatsoever, but by you having made it so solid. I mean, this, I think, is very important. What do we do with word? How do we encounter them? And to me, creative engagement with word is, first thing, is it about me or is it about them? Because somebody says something and we think it's about us, but not necessarily. I mean, of course, sometimes we can make mistakes and somebody can point them out, but not all the time. And so I think this is like we have this weird immediate reaction, mine, to this very empty thing. And then we keep it. And then time to time, you know, we bleed it a little bit. Oh, yeah, that was really nasty, you know. And then we might plot revenge, you know. But it's just a word. But you might say, but yeah, it's just a word, and it might be empty, but it's really potent. But where does the potency lie? I would say the potency lies in the grasping, lies in the identifying, lies in the amplifying. Because even if somebody says something unpleasant to you, if you don't grasp at it, and it's not about you, why keep it? You know, it's like if you buy a, you know, you go to the market, and you buy oranges or apple, and then you come home and you realize one of them is rotten, when generally you make very sure you only get the best apples, but you know, one make mistake and you get a rotten one. And you don't say, well, it's rotten. I'm going to keep it a long time. I'm going to eat it every day. No, you, it's rotten. I don't need it. You throw it, you recycle it, you compost it. It's the same with words. But it's, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, we hear something, it defines me. It's just a word. Does it define or not? Sometimes it can be good if somebody tells you something you don't notice. And it's, oh, it can be useful. Uh, because sometimes we are blind. So of course, if somebody points something out, it could be useful. I mean, it might not be pleasant. I remember many, many years ago, I was living in community. So we used to have this community meeting where fairly a little intense. And then one day, somebody decided to sort me out, attack me, or whatever, and decided, you know, he was fed up. I was too organizational. I was organizing everybody all the time that he was fed up with it. So, I mean, it did not feel pleasant as an experience. But afterward, I thought, hmm, maybe he has a point. I like to organize. Fair enough. Maybe I should not organize them so much. So I stopped doing it, and it was much better for everybody involved. But of course, it was not pleasant as an experience. But I did not grasp at it, thinking, I am a terrible person. I organize other. I just thought, oh, it's a good function, but possibly not to apply it all the time to everybody. So again, it's not to grasp at the identifying of it. And that was very useful. Another time I was meeting somebody and they really shouted at me and said all kinds of things. 
But what they were accusing me of, I have never done. So I just stood there. It was, again, not very pleasant, feeling torn a little unpleasant, but I listened to it. And then at the end, I said, well, fine. You don't want to meet me, me. that's fine. But afterward, with a friend, another teacher, I kind of got him. and Because I thought, if he can do this to me, a, med a teacher in the organization, then he might do this to other people, uh, which might not be uh, as easy for them. So I heard it. The encounter was not so pleasant, but I did not keep it. Because it was not about me, it was about him. And how he wanted to get out of the meeting, actually. That's all it was about. So in a way, is that we hear a word, what do we do? And then we can cultivate this when we practice meditation in terms of listening meditation. Personally, I think in terms of contact, working with contact, listening meditation I find very useful to just listen to the sounds and try not to grasp at them, not to comment or anything, but just to listen to the sound as they arise and then they pass away. Also, if the sound continues to notice, ah, the sound is changing within itself. So this is the first meditation I thought we could do. Then, possibly, when we do the walking meditation, we can see, we can explore either uh, the sound or we can explore the sight. Because I think it's the same. We see something. We grasp very quickly. And I think also something we have to see, which we can see with sensation, physical sensation. We have a very, very easy way to reject. To something is unpleasant, the contact, it's unpleasant. We generally grasp at it negatively. And it has the same amplifying effect. A few years back, suddenly one day, I had lots of pain. And my feeling was like there was so much pain in my body that the pain was outside of the mo my body even. And, you know, and then I start, you know, I am at death doors and whatever, a little hypochondriac. So I have this impression that my whole body is painful and even the air outside the body is painful. And then I think, wait a minute, what is really going on? So with the mindfulness, and the vipassana, the looking deeply into the experience, I start to do body scanning. Head, actually there is no pain in the head. Neck, shoulder, arms, no pain there. Torso, no pain there. And then I could see, oh, it's pain in my hips, which I have a tendency to have. And so from being like that, the pain was here. And then after that, I could deal with it, take some painkiller, go to have some massage or whatever, do some exercise. But so it's to see that we have a sensation. And often when we look at the bodily sensation, we're looking at the pleasant one, we think that's great. And the unpleasant one is like very quickly. We might amplify negatively. And so I think that's what body scanning, I think, can be very useful exercise to just go through the body and to see 
being with the sensation of contact, being with the different sensation in the body, seeing how they shift, how they change, how they come and go. I was doing, I mean, before the forest refuge was open, many years ago they had us, you know, try it out for uh, two months. So I went for a month. And uh, very quickly, I mean, I was very happy to do a, a long retreat. I was decided to do lots of meditation, da, 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 get up early, etc. And within three days, I had lots of pain in the stomach. The food did not totally suit me. So, because of the pain in the stomach, actually I did a lot of meditation. Because immediately I thought, if I have that pain like this the whole time, I have 28 more days, and I thought, wait a minute, you know, creative engagement. And creative engagement was actually two things. To see, first, that when I sat in meditation, I could go to the pain, and sometimes it was there, and sometimes it was not there whatsoever. And to me, that was very liberating, to see it was not really continuous. It changed within itself. It came and went. And also to see if I did more walking meditation in the forest, I would have less pain, or if I lie down. So again, I could manage the thing uh, easily, and I lasted uh, 28 more days. So in a way, to see that when we have a sensation, what happens if we grasp at it? What happens if I creatively engage with it? So this is what I wanted to say for this morning. Is this relatively clear? So what I suggest first is that we stand up just to stretch a little. And then if you can find a comfortable posture. So what we'll do is that we'll keep uh, the silence uh, during the formal session until the discussion. And then after that, lunchtime, we'll see what we do, and the same in the afternoon. So if we find a comfortable posture, the back is straight. The shoulders are open. The head is resting lightly on the shoulders. And as we sit here, just opening with mindfulness, caring and careful mindfulness, to the sounds of the world, the music of life. Just listening without grasping or rejecting. In terms of anchoring, we can anchor in the space in which the sound happen, or we can anchor in the most prominent sound at any given moment. And as we anchor in listening, noticing, 
how the sounds arise and pass away. Or we have, if we have a sound which continues, it also changes within itself. Listening to sounds with a caring and careful awareness, being aware of sounds arising and passing away, changing within themselves. So now, there are uh, 30 minutes of a walking meditation. And during the walking meditation, you can walk indoors, in this room, or in the smaller room. If you want to walk outside, you can also, as long as you come back <laughs> uh, and get the elevator in time. So whatever suits you. And during the walking meditation, uh, it's an opportunity, in a way, to do meditation in movement. Also, is having a different relationship with walking. Because generally, when we walk, we go somewhere. And often, we walk on automatic, because we're thinking of the aim, of the goal. Walking meditation, we just walk for the sake of walking. And then, we can use different anchors. We can use the anchor of the feet. So just being aware of the feet, touching the ground. And then, of course, from the feet touching the ground in the foreground, then you can put this in the background and then open to the sound if you want. Or as you walk, what I find is interesting is also to work with visual contact. So you might see the color red, or you might see the color blue, or you might see a chair or a lamp. And can you just see it? as it arises, and notice how there is this mm. Like yesterday, we talked of the feeling tone. Mm, I like this. Where can I get this? The design is terrible, or whatever you might have. And just notice. So this is not about judging anything, but just being aware. What happens when I see something? Is there this very quick grasping, identifying, solidifying, expanding, or can I just see the thing, I pass it, I see something else, and then in that seeing, there is that stability, that openness, from which there can be a creative response. So here, as we are, uh, oh, if we prefer to walk and do just a walking meditation, being aware of the body as you walk, that's fine too. So I would recommend that you walk a little slower than normal, and on a short distance because of the number of the people and the room. Also, during the walking meditation, I am available if anybody has a personal question they want to talk about with me, because at the end of the morning, we'll have a good session of discussion where you can bring comments, experiences, questions, as much as you want. So, and so the bell will be rung at 11.27, for example. So if uh, we can uh, return to the room and uh, find a comfortable posture. I would uh, like to say a few words before the next uh, meditation. So you might notice today I'm uh, 
each time we do a sitting meditation, I'm going to bring a different type of meditation. This is not to confuse you, but uh, it's just to, to explore contact and to explore different ways to cultivate concentration and uh, looking deeply, what I call experiential inquiry. So we explored the listening. During the walking meditation, we explore the body, the sensation of contact with the sound, also with what we see. And now I like to do a body scanning meditation. So I'll just, uh, through the meditation, I'll go slowly through it. And because in a way, uh, we, this is one of the major contact we have is with our body, with our physical sensation. And so I think this can be a very good practice in terms of grounding ourselves in the body, but also in terms of how we creatively engage or we grasp when we experience a sensation. And also I think when we go through the body, we can explore either the sensation of contact, of just the air on the cheeks, or the clothes on the skin, or the hands on each other on the side, or the sensation of contact of the buttocks on the chair. So that's one way where we can rest the attention in the body in a restful manner because it's uh, an opportunity to be aware of the neutral feeling tone we talked about yesterday. Or we can also be aware of sensation. And we experience a sensation, and before we name it, how does it feel? How does it change? How does it come and go? But when we use the uh, Vipassana aspect of the meditation, we are not trying to define something. We are actually trying to be more in the experience. I think it's very important to see that the vipassana aspect of the meditation, the looking deeply, the experiential inquiry, is kind of, it's not about commenting on the experience, but it's actually about being in the experience itself. So that if you have a sensation in the knees, is being inside that sensation. If you have an itch, on the cheek, just being inside that sensation that it's so intense, it's going to last forever, and then it's so gone. And so being really present with the caring and careful mindfulness to that, it being so there, it being so gone. So that's what I like to explore now. So if we find a comfortable posture, the back is straight, the shoulders are open. And gently bringing our attention to the head. Just being aware of the head. The scalps, the face, inside the head. without grasping or rejecting. How does it feel to have a head?
Now bringing our attention to the neck and the shoulders, being aware of the sensation of contact of the clothes on the body. Now bringing our attention to the arms and the hands, being aware of the sensation of contact of the hands on each other or on the side. Now bringing our attention to the torso, the front and the back, being aware of any sensation in that part of the body without grasping or rejecting. Now bringing our attention to the pelvic area, the front and the back, being aware of the sensation of contact of the buttocks on the cushion. Now bringing our attention to the upper parts of the legs and the knees. And if there are any sensation in those parts of the body, looking deeply into them, seeing how they arise, stay a while, and pass away.
Now bringing our attention to the lower parts of the legs and the feet. And if there are any sensations, strong sensation in those parts of the body, looking deeply into it, experiencing that it changes within itself. Now being aware of the whole body. Now, if we could just stand in meditation, get up slowly and just do standing meditation just for a minute or two. So being aware of the sensation of the body as we stand. Gently stretching and again being aware of sensation as we stretch. And then finding a comfortable posture for the discussion. <coughs> so for the discussion, if there are any comments, any questions, this is wide open.
Yes. It's coming. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, please comment on the relationship between being deeply within an experience and observing it simultaneously. Uh, this is a tough question. Uh, it seems to me that often mindfulness is presented as observation. So in a way, uh, we're using the sense of seeing, uh, which generally defines. And some people said, uh, could we use, in a way, uh, talking about mindfulness, instead of using the metaphor of seeing, observing, could we use a metaphor of listening? So then, if we, if we were more about, instead of observing, because often there is, uh, when we observe, we have a sen sensation to be detached, to, to be removed and looking above something. Could we think of um, observation in a different way? Could we think of maybe more listening to the experience, being with the experience? Because I feel, I can see where the translation often uh, people talk about ob observing. I can, I can see why they would do that, because the Buddha, as one analogy for one metaphor, for sati, for mindfulness, is to be on top of a tower. But is he, is he using the top of the tower as a means to remove ourselves from something, or is using the top of the tower so that we have a more spacious view? And personally, I think it's a second one. So I think the idea is to have, a, often he talk of being a little higher. And often we interpret it that we have to be above something. When personally, I wonder if the metaphor is not more about space. Like, if I am right in front of something, then I just see it. And then I might easily grasp at it and be stuck to it. When if I go on top of the tower, I see it from afar, but I see everything surrounding it. So then it's more kind of a feeling of spaciousness, which then look at the different condition, different aspect. So personally, I would say, like if you have like, say, a sensation in the knee, to me, the, I think it's a different move to, oh, I have this sensation in the knee. And then it's kind of you go into the description, the definition, and then maybe ideas of what you're supposed to do with it or whatever. When personally, the, what I try to do is more, I go inside the sensation to try to experience it where it is in a spacious way. And so I am aware of the sensation where it happens before I go into commenting, naming, etc., and associating, I go inside the sensation and then I try to, how does it feel? How does it change? So that's what I would see about it in terms of that. Thank you. 
Hi. Uh, in terms of a, a comment, one thing that I found interesting in the um, sound meditation is that every sound uh, immediately evoked an image as well. So, you know, if I heard a sound outside of a siren, uh, actually it would evoke a word sometimes, siren, and then also an image of, I don't know, an ambulance or something. Or like if somebody was coughing here, I would feel like, I would imagine somebody uh, coughing, but in a suppressed way because this is uh, because of the environment. So I thought it was interesting how it doesn't just stay a sound. Um, and in terms of a, a question, you were talking about proliferating before, and I was wondering if there's a way to, um, just as you described the contact with the flowers of immediate, uh, to have a, a similar contact with a proliferating, so we're not that engaged in it, but we're still observing it and even enjoying it as we would maybe the flower. And I think that for me sometimes, um, if, I, if I write, that's really what proliferating is. Like I'll see an image and a whole story will come from it. But, uh, you know, can I, can I enjoy it, but in a, in a mindful way? So there is different things there. Uh, first thing, this is a listening meditation. This is a very good point. Generally, you have the contact, and then you have the perception. Perception is a function. So generally, we recognize sounds. So generally, siren, cough, birds, etc. And then often, if we are artistic, then we'll have an image come with it. Uh, what is interesting is when you hear a sound and you don't know what it is. And you can see the, 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 the wanting to know. And then, in terms of the meditation, sitting here uh, in a safe place, it's interesting just to hear the sound for itself instead of for the perception and then the image and things we have of it. It's an interesting experience. Uh, so, so that's what I would say about that one. Yeah, we see that immediately the perception comes in. Uh, then, I think we have to see, uh, I would say, different things about thought. First thing is to see that we are in contact with thought. One moment we don't have a thought, next we have it, so you have that contact with the thought, and then that creates a feeling tone, and then perception, and etc., etc. So, Often what happens is that if you become aware of the proliferation, often it just stops. Not because you stop it, but because, oh, it's like the energy of it uh, is not totally, uh, you're not identified with it so much, and so generally you don't kind of continue so much with it. So sometimes the proliferation will be gone by just the seeing of the thought. And I think that sometimes that's what the difficulty is, what I would call mindfulness of thought. Because you sit there, you try to see your thought, and you don't have any thought because you're kind of, you know, trying to look at them. So then I think, yes, it's interesting to see the thought you have. I mean, you have all kinds of thought. 
And some are more, I would say, skillful than others, so more inducing pleasant feeling tone or negative feeling tone and leading to action, which might be appropriate or inappropriate. So I think it's useful to see what happens in those terms, kind of to look at it. What's going on? What am I saying? What is the languaging in the thought and thing of that nature? I think it's very interesting. It's even interesting to see what is the taste, the feeling of the thought. Uh, yesterday, someone was talking about daydreaming. And daydreaming at this very gooey, mm, kind of really very interesting why we go into daydreaming at the beginning. So I think, yeah, it's very interesting to look at the thought, at the word you use in them, if you can do it in a light way. And so you don't have the judging of the judging of the judging. But then what I think you're talking about is a little different. Is what I would call a, uh, a creative thought. You see, I am, a, I am a writer also. And what I do with writing is that generally I throw thoughts. I throw, oh, what about this? What about that? Think a little bit and then stop. Then later on, throw it a little bit, stop. And then I go in front of the computer and then generally in the doing of it, something will happen. And as I uh, do quite a lot of meditation, what I have noticed is that there is a difference with what I would call an entertaining thought and a creative thought. Because what I used to find myself is sitting and having an amazing idea for a book and really spending a lot of time on the meditation, this great idea, da 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 da, yes, yes, yes. And then I ended up, I would never use it. And I thought this is like more like entertainment, actually, which is fine, but. And all the thought, it's really, ah, yeah, that aspect, this aspect. And then what you have with creative thought is that you have the creativity of it, suddenly you see something or you imagine something that you've not imagined before. That's creative functioning. And then at some point, the energy of that goes. And then what you generally get is a repetition of it. You know, you repeat it this way, that way, I must remember it, etc. And so, I mean, as a writer, you have to see how you work. But I think in terms of the meditation process, I think we can look at thought in different ways. And so when I have this creative thought, I would say I go with it a bit, and when I see it's repetitive, I just leave it. And I don't try to remember it, because it was, if it was a good one, then I'll remember it later. Because otherwise you spend your time trying to remember the remember, then you kind of... I have a question on how you could adapt the body scan to people who have severe chronic pain and are not able to do body scan. So, um, you see, if somebody was in great pain, personally, I would actually recommend to do listening meditation or to do another kind of meditation. Because if if you have lots of pain, your, your, your whole system is sensitized. So your level of feeling tone are, is going to be quite high. Right. And then if you pay attention to it 
And if your mindfulness is not uh, kind of caring and careful enough, then actually it intensifies to focus on it. So that's why generally I would put it in the background. And then in the foreground, I would put the, the listening meditation or maybe loving kindness phrases or whatever else would be helpful for the person. If you wanted to use the body as a focus, then I would try to find, is there a place where the person can find no pain? That, that I would, so then I would look for the sensation of contact. Are they able to access the sensation of contact without accessing the sensi sensitivity level? So that's what I would look at. Or if they have no pain in the feet, concentrating in the feet. Or if they're lying down in bed, uh, focusing on the sensation of contact of the body on the bed with the sheet. And what about um, just mindfulness, open monitoring? Um, hmm? Open monitoring, mindfulness, watching the thoughts. Um, because they're also having difficulty with that. Yeah, I think, again, you see, if you are relatively immobile, you are in relatively a lot of pain, you're going to have relatively unpleasant feeling tone, and possibly your thoughts are going to be unpleasant and in many different ways. So, unless, unless they can bring again the caring, careful mindfulness to it, or they can question it in a way which is helpful. I would not again focus on the thought right. unless it was helpful, because then I would actually more focus uh, on phrases. You know, like on the, the loving kindness phrase, phrases, so that in a way they have a, a possibility of having different kind of thoughts. So I would use more that the quality phrases like the loving kindness, the rejoicing if they can do it, mm -hmm. the equanimity if it seems to be useful, because then it's kind of like they think, but they think in a way we could be supportive. So it's kind of, in a way, indirectly, <coughs> indirectly working with thought, but in a different way. I've also been advising that they start off with um, attention to the breath to start to notice thought so that they can avoid the catastrophizing and, and depressive thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's if they're comfortable anchoring in the breath, the breath can be very useful. And then it's kind of like, uh, there is a very good book by uh, Darlene Cohen on how to deal with pain. And uh, because she, 40 years old, she got rheumatoid arthritis and she was a Zen teacher. And what she said is that the big work she had to do at the beginning is accepting that she had what she had and that she could not go back to before. She could be a, a new person with this, but she could not at some point be the person who was as busy as she used to be, as is, as that. And so she said a, a big part of actually dealing with the pain was in a way creatively accepting the situation and then creatively engaging in different ways 
with the condition she had. So I think, yes, and the breath can help in that. Thank you very much. I, I'm not really clear what you mean by listening meditation. If you could like expand on it, I would really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so listening meditation, I mean, I'm fairly sure different people might teach it in different way. But the way I see it is uh, we, we, we sit or we walk or we in daily life and then we just open ourselves to the sound of the world. So the anchor becomes the sounds. So the breath goes into the background, the body goes into the background, and then we go for the listening. So it's kind of like we're just there with the sound, and we what I think it's an important meditation because it helps us to cultivate receptivity. Because the reason I think it's useful as a balance to the breath is that if we do meditation on the breath, on the body, on the mind, on the feeling tone, it's generally inside us. So then we associate meditation with being aware of ourselves. When I think awareness is as much about ourselves as everything else. So then the focus there, the concentration, is very different. Because with the other type of meditation, you generally have a more narrow anchor. When with the listening, the anchor is very large. And then with the listening meditation, you can choose a little bit in terms of the focus. Do I focus on the space in which the sound happens? So then it will be a very large focus, and it will just be like what I would call in an accepting mood, just waiting for the sound to happen and being in that space. Or is it more helpful to actually anchor in what I would say the most prominent sound, like the sound that is most, your attention goes to more naturally. And so then, what, that's what I do a lot, is that I might hear one more, so I stay with that sound, and when that sound goes, I might go to another one, and if there is one like here, I'm just aware of that sound and how it changes and things of that nature. Usually paying attention to the sound, I find very distracting, actually. In life, in general, sound I find very distracting. So I'm just kind of wondering, so I, I tend to use the breath as my anger because that seems to anger me better or the body, like the bottom of my feet. So how would, how would one start to do that kind of practice so that one can find an anger in the sound. So, first I have to, 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 why I propose different things is because I have seen that some methods are better for some people than others. So the breath is good for some people, but I would not recommend it, for example, to people who have asthma. Uh, listening is good for some people. I would not necessarily recommend it to people who have tinnitus, ringing in the ears. Body, I would recommend it for some people, but possibly not those who have too much pain, unless it's found to be useful. So that's why I think you might, you might be better doing the breath and the body, because that suits you. 
Some other person might be better doing the listening because that suits the person. But if you wanted to try to experiment with the listening meditation, then what I would do is go more for what I call focusing on the most prominent sound. Because when you do the listening meditation, this is not a scientific exercise. We're not trying to listen to every sound to the same degree. It's not at the, like at the end of the day, you give me a list of all the sounds you've heard. Not at all. It's just using it as an anchor. So then the question is, when it's silent and there are no sound, then you just listen to the silence. But if there are some sounds, generally I would be aware of the most obvious one, the one my attention is more aware of, you could say. And then when that goes, then the next one. That goes, then the next one. So you're not actually looking to listen to sound, and you're not trying to listen to all the sound. So it's just cultivating that receptive posture. I was um, very happy to hear you say that we were going to meditate on sound. It's something I do a lot. And um, I realized that I was looking to that advice or that direction as a place, as you put it, as an anchor, uh, a place to begin stillness, a place of resting and ceasing. The predominant sound for me in this chair is the sound of, I, I guess it's the air conditioner. And I became aware that this was a different kind of hearing experience than one in which sounds arise and fall, in which case you can have a larger reception as you can just let go of those sounds knowing they will decay. That sound is constant and largely blanks out any types of sound that arise and fall. And so I was trying to understand how I could use that sound as a place of rest or repose or stillness. And I recalled what you had said about words. And of course, a word is a different kind of sound because it comes packed with meaning and history. And so I decided that the sound of the air conditioner with its constant repetition and very little variation within its sound was a mantra of something that just repeats over and over. No, I think in a way this is um, what is interesting with listening meditation is that you can have all kinds of sounds, or you can have no sounds, you can have some continuous sounds. And, and then we have, you know, we kind of sensitized to sound in different ways. So of course, if we are like in nature, 
like, I mean, last week, last weekend, I was teaching in the countryside in France, and all we heard was tweet, 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 tweet. So, of course, everybody was, mm, like, you know, they love listening meditation. But I find it as valuable uh, to actually listen to the sound of the AC. Of course, the feeling tone is a little different. But as an exercise, I found it interesting to see, yes, there is repetition, but it changes, it comes, sometimes you have all the sound, and then it kind of makes us look a little bit as what you did, as of our relationship to it, how we perceive it. And the way we perceive it really change the feeling tone we have about it. And so that's why I find it interesting, the idea. Like in a way, one thing we can say to ourselves about the AC noise is that as long as we hear it, we are aware. And notice when you, you are thinking of something else, actually you're not aware of it. So in a way, it's kind of like a bell of mindfulness. And so it's kind of very interesting when you have a sound which is relatively repetitive and continuous like that, how you can use it. Instead of what, yes, generally what we do is, oh, oh, it's come. And then there is back to that spaciousness. So here it's kind of you're dealing with something which is more occupying. And that's uh, kind of uh, interesting. I just wanted to add something onto that, my experience with the air conditioner, and I have tinnitus, by the way. Um, <clears throat> I, I, listening, I could hear little other things going on in the machine. I mean, there were things that came up and went down, plus all the everything else going on around it. Um, but what I found is that when I was really just hearing the, air, the AC, um, my mind just wanted to jump around. It was really hard to hold it. I almost had to be, have a physical, a kinesthetic sense in my body in order to hold that sound. And then I would find myself going to my breath in order to stay with the sound. So I just wondered if you had a comment about that, about what might be going on or? Yeah, no, I think it, <coughs> you know, it's not the greatest sound in the universe, let's say. But with meditation, we can be with it, definitely. So the question is also back to what I said, is that some people, uh, the listening meditation will be uh, a more natural fit. And then everything can go in it. That it be the sound of the AC, the bird, or anything else. But for some other people, because of different sensitivity or different way of perceiving, etc. they can't really use certain sound as an anchor. And I think then it's really, you know, then put it in the background, because you'll hear it anyway, and then as an anchor, use the breath or the body. I think it's very important to see. That's why I'm like, today you're going to have four very different meditation sitting, because I think it's very important uh, to see, oh yeah, this seems to suit me more, this seems to suit me less. Because often we think, oh, I cannot do the breath because there is something wrong with me. I think possibly it's something wrong with the breath, not something wrong with you. So I think it's to be, not to sacralize the different things, but to really see, ah, 
is what I would call play to your strength. And so then I would say, what is a good anchor for me? Because you have the anchor, and anyway, you will have everything else. You see, we can look at concentration, at samatha, one of the two bases for meditation, in two different ways. We can think about it in terms of what I would call exclusive concentration, which then would mean you just have the anchor and you try to push everything else. This can be very good in certain terms, in terms of a certain calm and think of that nature, though possibly can bring some tension, but that's that. Or you can have what it seems to be might be more useful in terms of meditation in daily life, is what I would call an anchor within a wide open awareness. So it's what I would call an inclusive concentration. And then what you have is actually nearly like a different series level of anchor. So you have the anchor of the breath, which is what will kind of ground you. And then you might be a little back. So let's say you have the anchor of the breath, 60%. And you could have 30%, a bit of the AC anyway, and then the rest. And that, you know, at time you might go from the breath to the AC back to the breath. Or you might go the body and the sound. So to me, I see it more as a kind of like a little moving thing. It's kind of like we kind of go to one anchor, but the anchor might recede in the background, something else might be in the foreground, but it doesn't really matter because it's the same awareness. And at the same time, you still have this anchor you can come back to. So that's what I would uh, recommend. Yeah, so I think I, I understand better what you're doing with, with all this, but I just wanted to add that I did notice when I was focusing on the air conditioner how... Um, there was an inner expectation. This is, this is like thought or feeling or whatever. An inner expectation of what, I, what should be happening with me. That I should be able to do this a certain way or something should be happening. And that was very important to see. Yeah, because you, you see this is something I think is very important to look at in terms of practice. Is a difference between cultivation and effect. When we... Practice, we're actually cultivating. Cultivating samatha, vipassana, anchoring, and experiential inquiry. But a lot of the time, we're actually focusing on the effect. So we are sitting, trying to be aware, whatever, and instead of seeing we're doing the job the best we can within the situation, I mean, within two minutes, we do what I call checking meditation. Is this working? Am I doing it the right way? But when we go into checking meditation, we're not actually cultivating. And I think it's very important to see that, of course, we want this to help us and to make a difference. But I think to be careful with uh, the way, as you say, expectation. And so I would make also a difference between expectation and aspiration. Aspiration gives us energy to move towards something. So let's say I have aspiration toward wisdom and compassion, and so I cultivate in order to move toward that, but not a precise compassion or not compassion 100% or whatever. I move toward something, so it gives me the energy to aspire to that. But if I 
have expectation that I must be compassionate 150%, wise 150%, then, or I must be like this or like that. Expectation generally makes us tense and limits us because we generally have expectation of things known in a way. So in a way, to see how we move from we go to do the sitting, let's say, and we inspire, aspire, and then we think, hmm, but should not it be this way? What about that? And I think to kind of see when we move from one to the other, which I think is what you've, you saw. Uh, I have tinnitus, so I was wondering how to work with the listening meditation and when you have that. I mean, I don't hear it with the air conditioner, but when it's more quiet. Oh, sorry. I don't hear my tinnitus when I have something like the air conditioner going, but then if it's more silent, I will certainly, you know, it will arise. <laughs> so, or I will become aware of it. Yeah, exactly. That's why I did not mention tinnitus at the beginning, because I thought, no problem. They will have this to cover it up <laughs> if they have it. Because generally, I teach in very quiet places, like Gaia House in England or where I was. Like, it's very quiet. So then I would not recommend to do the meditation of listening if you have tinnitus inside the room when it's very quiet. I would recommend to do it more outside when there are more noises. Because otherwise you're going to focus on the tinnitus and if you have a difficult relationship to it, it's going to intensify it. But it's true that some people find that if they do mindfulness meditation, they find that sometimes the tinnitus uh, can go down, but by not focusing on it, but by having a different relationship to it. So that's what I would recommend. Don't do the listening in a silent place, if you have teenagers generally. But especially, I mean, the best thing is in a park with lots of birds. In the walking meditation in the other room, there was a crack on the floor. And I wanted to stop and get down and look at it closer. And I didn't know if that was grasping, so I didn't do it. Uh, why not? Why not? No, no, you see something, you can look at it. You know, no, no. I think in terms of visual, because we're going to go for lunch, and so you'll have lots of visual. And so it's visual is very interesting, visual contact because we see something and we name it, cracks. And, it, and is it because you see it or is it because you hear it as you walk on it? And so you want, generally we want, this is perception, we want to see what it looks like. You know, like yesterday, the other day I walked a lot in New York and then suddenly I woke up in the morning and I had something like on my foot and I thought, and the problem when you have something on your feet, foot, it's kind of a little hard to see close. Generally, I tried, you know. You know, my first thing was, I hope it's not a tick, but I thought, you know, New York, I should not get a tick in New York. And uh, so you see something, and you want to perceive it. You want to see what it, what it is. And so that is not grasping. That is just looking at something. But sometimes then what you can notice is what you do with it. You know, if you are the type of person who likes to repair things, you might already start, oh, could I repair the crack? 
or if you're some other type of person, you might be, you know, concerned about it, or you might enjoy it, you know, like, uh, I am a photographer, so sometimes, you know, I see things, and I feel, hmm, I can do a photo with this, and uh, people wonder, what is she photographing? You know, it's not interesting, you know, it's, uh, so, so I would say, no, it's not necessarily grasping to look at something in detail. Grasping is, if you do identify with it in a certain way, then go into a different story about it and things of that nature. Thank you. Thank you. So that's why I would really recommend, like, um, we're going to go uh, outside, unless you brought your uh, lunch to eat here. Uh, you might go outside and you might see lots of things. You might see the food you eat, you might see people, you might see a shop window. And just to see what we do, the contact, and then the feeling tone, you know, mm, pleasant. Mm. And to see uh, what happened with the visual and also how we perceive it and how mm, mm, I might want it or not want it or... I start to have idea about it, and, and can I just see? Can I just see what I see? Of course, being careful. I mean, if you see a car coming down the road and you're in the middle of the road, you know, you don't say, oh, I see the car. You're kind of, whoa. So always with wisdom and compassion. But it, I think it's very interesting, uh, visual contact, and what happened in terms of the feeling tone, but also what happened in terms of what do we do with it? The way we look at each other, I mean, that's fascinating. The way we look at each other and so quickly we decide this person is like this or is like that, when we have no idea. So it's, it's quite a, a good practice. So we're going to stop here for lunch and then uh, the lunch break, lunch break will be until 2. That would be nice. But of course, if you're stuck with the elevator, we'll also wait for you. Don't worry. <laughs>